Get ready for the smartest bundle in streaming. Six streaming services for the intellectually curious. Featuring Curiosity Stream with the best collection of documentary films and TV shows. Psalm TV and great stories from the world of wine. Taste Made for the fun side of food and travel. Topic with the best thrillers and crime stories. And so much more. From nature to history, technology to food, mystery to adventure. Get six streaming services for one low price. And less than $6 a month, it's the best deal in streaming. Learn more and sign up now at smartbundle.com. 11.50 p.m. I sat behind the door this time. The last few days had been bad enough for me to be a little more cautious. I was still taking aspirin to stave off the migraine that started as soon as the porch light went out on Friday night. I wasn't taking any more chances. There have been many comments asking me not to be outside when the paper comes, and that maybe that's what caused the ledge game to become real. I don't know. I also don't know if the people who say that it was my act of reading the papers that is changing things. But I can't stop. Not yet. I need to read the paper to understand it. To understand how much my father knew and how it had affected him. I lost touch with my dad. The funeral was hard on him. Hard on all of us. He retreated after that. Wouldn't even want me over for Thanksgiving or Christmas. One thing he said back then that I've been thinking about was, it's not my fault. Did he, did, did he mean the midnight paper? Did he think reading had done something to my mom? Now he's gone too. The doctors said he sustained several injuries. Some of them were old, already healed. Self-harm was suspected, as was some sort of mental breakdown. When I got here, most of the mirrors were either covered up, removed, or smashed. His TV screen was covered with cardboard and hidden under a comforter. I'm still looking through my dad's notebooks. He must have hundreds of them. Most don't even make any sense, just scrambled words that I have a hard time deciphering because of his handwriting. 11.59pm. It was time. Once again I didn't feel ready. Once again I felt like I was doing something stupid, but I didn't have a choice. At midnight on the dot. The porch light went out. Through the keyhole, I could see the already familiar patch of darkness form on the welcome mat. Then I blinked and the lights were on again. And there, where it always was, was a brand new edition of the midnight paper. I opened the front door and hesitated. I was looking at that bundle of bound black pages with the same kind of cautious respect reserved for dangerous animals and predatory pieces of machinery. You don't put your hand anywhere close to a meat grinder. You don't try to grab a rat or a raccoon with your bare hands. But I walked over and grabbed the midnight paper anyway. The second I felt its pages touch my skin, I thought that I should have worn gloves. Whatever. It probably didn't make a difference. I was going to read it, and that was probably worse. I repeated what was quickly becoming a sort of ritual. I took the paper inside, set it down on the work table in my dad's office, and used the knife from the kitchen to cut the twine. The paper unfurled itself slowly, and the headline popped out at me. The Hunger, Mass Hysteria or Unknown Condition After a bizarre series of events that spanned only a few days, government officials and healthcare professionals are struggling to treat the residents of a small town in upstate New York. At their request, the name of the town is being withheld from all publications. It started slowly. 
A few strange reports started trickling into the social media accounts of many of the town's residents. Some were presented as cute. My little guy was so hungry, he got into the pantry and ate half of his new cereal box, wrote one young mother. Others were presented as comedic. If I eat another burger, I'm going to end up like that purple brat from Willy Wonka, wrote one girl. Lastly, on that first day, some people were writing in concern. My baby won't stop drinking milk. Four bottles and still crying like he's hungry. What should I do? It seemed that, slowly, everyone in town was coming down with a monstrous case of hunger. Delivery orders skyrocketed. Supermarkets became crowded. With each passing hour, it seemed that nobody was immune to the sudden onset of paradoxical hunger. And it was getting worse. People stuck at home ate through their entire bounties. Some even ate raw spices and garbage. Whatever was at hand. They tried to swallow anything to quell that bottomless nagging, painful feeling in their stomachs. The town's residents hardly slept that first few nights, choosing instead to continue eating anything they could get their hands on. Soon, concepts such as self-restraint and societal norms seemed to crumble away. Restaurant staff left customers unattended and raided the kitchen and even the freezer, eating food and ingredients raw. Local businesses that served no food were abandoned, and those that did serve it were overrun. People could scarcely make it out the front door, sitting on the sidewalks with their bounty and eating through it on the spot. The town's only hospital was filled to the brim. The lucky few who were able to get a doctor to themselves were put through a gauntlet of medical tests. Every possible avenue was pursued, from parasites such as tapeworms to neurological conditions to psychological breakdowns and they all came back lacking evidence. The town's water supply was tested for anything out of the ordinary with nothing to show for it. It wasn't long before violence erupted. Food was running out, and anything, even dog food, even the dumpsters behind butcher shops, even pet store cages, were now viable options. People were trading blows over scraps on the street. Soon, fists and blunt objects weren't enough. It was long before someone pulled a knife or a firearm, but knives and firearms were to be expected, to some extent. What wasn't expected was downright unspeakable, it was when people started using their teeth. It was less than a week before it happened, and once it did, it was as if a line was crossed. One person did it, so it became an option for everyone else. Bundles of discarded, bloody clothing became a common sight. The residents were soon joined by several out-of-towners, concerned family members and friends, law enforcement agencies, medical experts. Most of these people were never seen again, and those that were had already joined in. Through it all, a few social media accounts remained active. Most of them were incoherent or entirely mute, simply liking anything related to food, and soon just liking anything that showed a person or a pet. One account, however, contained just enough coherent writing to quote in this publication. Everything you eat has a soul, the anonymous user wrote. You consume it when you eat it. We can eat much more now. Eat something and take it into ourselves. We can eat life itself if we keep going. Some are eating the ground and becoming this place. If the sun came down, we could eat it too. Reports from the town of 
since gone dark. Local law enforcement agencies have established a barricade around the area, effectively cutting the town off from the rest of the world. There have been sightings of the military as well, with some rumors even stating that gunshots and explosions have been heard. It's troubling, then, that there has been a trend of social media posts of uncontrollable hunger from surrounding towns in the area. Government officials have stated that there's nothing to worry about. These posts are part of a social media frenzy, a sick joke, said a representative whose name has since been pulled. The people in the town are being treated, and there's absolutely no danger of other towns succumbing to the same condition. As soon as I was done reading, I backed away from my dad's desk, as if it had suddenly caught fire. This one was worse. Worse than the ledge game. Worse than the removal doctor. Worse than the new kid. If this one became real, it was unthinkable. It's horrible. I grabbed a garbage bag from the kitchen and used the knife to push the midnight paper and the pieces of twine into it. I took the bag into my dad's backyard and pulled the grill's cover off. The midnight paper made a dull smack as it landed on the grill's metal bars. I screwed the cap off and flipped the bottle open. Before the lighter fluid even left the nozzle, the black pages began curling up and breaking into tiny motes and floating away. I sprayed the lighter fluid anyway but by the time it hit the grill, there was nothing left. The midnight paper had vanished in seconds, breaking up into pieces so small, I couldn't even see them fly away. I collapsed onto my dad's living room chair, the migraine already back at full blast. You were right. I shouldn't have read it. I should have listened to my dad, because when I turned the TV on, it was set to the news, and they were talking about several encounters with a strange man, a strange man who claimed to be a doctor. It was Friday night, 10 to midnight. I knew that, right now, the newest edition of the Midnight Paper would be hitting my parents, welcome Matt in a few moments. But I wasn't there. I decided after last time that I wasn't going to be reading the next article. What if it contained something worse than the hunger? I couldn't let it become real. I didn't want any more blood on my hands. I sat at the rickety table included in my motel room. Every time I hit a key on my laptop, the table rattled, tilting toward its short leg, which I couldn't identify for the life of me. I didn't mind. I was counting the minutes with each time I hit refresh on the search page of Hurricks High School's website. On the search bar was the name Stephanie Carson. I got the midnight paper with the ledge game article on Friday, September 11th at midnight. One week later, on Friday, September 18th at midnight, I had witnessed a girl jumping off a building to end her life. I read the midnight paper with the Removal Doctor article on Wednesday, September 16th at midnight. One week later, on Wednesday, September 22nd at midnight, I had first heard about the Removal Doctor on the local news. That doesn't mean that it takes one week before getting a midnight paper and the article in it becoming true. If I was right, that night at midnight, Stephanie Carson would become real. She'd suddenly appear in the Hurex High School website as if she was always enrolled there. No memorial service, no news about a tribute or a plaque going up in her honor, just a page or two about the school's most gifted student. Midnight. Just as I hit refresh, I heard three knocks on my motel room door. What? No, no, it, it couldn't be. But it was. 
I opened my door and there on the patch of filthy rug right in front of my room was a bundle of black paper bound in black twine. I grabbed a plastic bag that held the snacks I'd bought at a gas station, put on a pair of rubber gloves, and grabbed a pair of grill tongs. The midnight paper dangled off the teeth of the tongs, its strange electricity still somehow crackling through the rubber and making the hairs on my hands stand up. I dropped the paper into the plastic bag and tied it into a tight knot. Then I dropped that bag into another two bags for good measure and tossed them into a dumpster by the ice machine. By the time I got back, the crappy motel internet had finally loaded the page. Ten results for Stephanie Carson. I gripped the sides of the crappy motel table. Would I be too late? Was it tonight? A few minutes later, I opened my motel room door cautiously. The patch of filthy carpet was empty. No new midnight paper. I smiled. Maybe I'd gotten rid of it entirely. Maybe not reading one was all it took for it to leave you alone. I went right to the dumpster. The bags I'd hid in the midnight paper in were still there. They hadn't mysteriously vanished. I nodded and got in my car. By the time I got to the right part of town, the night was cold and bright. Streetlights glinted off of every surface, bouncing off a thousand reflective surfaces and zeroing in on my eyes. The migraine was back in full swing. I was a little used to it by now. I chugged a bit more of my soda and narrowed my eyes. I had a long night ahead of me. I stopped the car and unplugged my phone from its stand on the dashboard. On the screen was something I wasn't proud of at all. Stephanie Carson's Instagram account. It had taken me less than an hour to find it. I won't write it here, but her username was a simple combination of her name and her volleyball jersey number. I wasn't set to private either. A little scrolling had led me to a photo of Stephanie and her friends in front of a house that could only be described as excessive. It was as close to Cinderella's castle as you could get while still being attached to a sidewalk. I didn't know the exact address, but there was a photo of her in front of a street sign with the same group of friends wearing the same clothes as before. It was easy to guess that they had taken the photo in front of Stephanie's house and the photo of the street sign back to back. The same street sign was in front of me now, and a few feet away from it was Cinderella's castle itself, and one of the lights upstairs was on. I walked around the block more than a few times, trying to get my story straight. I had to warn Stephanie about Mark Bailey, who she already knew about, but then she'd ask me how I knew what I did, and I was still working that part out. I could show her my posts on here, but knocking on a girl's door and telling her that I'd posted on Reddit about her murder... Yeah, no. I'd be in a straitjacket before morning. Whatever. I didn't need to make sense. I didn't even need to tell her about the posts. I could simply knock on her door and tell her that I'd driven by and seen a strange man peering through her windows. She'd think I'd spotted Bailey and would probably call the cops on him. Problem solved. Then why not call the cops myself? Because they'd ask questions. But she would too. I sighed. There was seemingly no way to do this without looking as creepy as Mark Bailey himself. I walked up to the front door, held my breath, and knocked. The sound seemed explosive in the darkness, but that was probably just the lateness of the hour amplifying every sound times 100. Still, no sound or movement or light came from inside. I knocked again, a little louder this time. A few seconds later, nothing had changed. 
I was out of options. I bit the bullet and stabbed the doorbell with my finger. The electric chime echoed through the house, about as subtle as a carpet bombing. One light went on, two, then the whole first floor lit up. I heard the muted little footsteps from behind the door as if someone was walking on carpet. Then the latch turned and the door swung open and something hit me on the head. Wake up, creeper, a girl's voice said. I opened my eyes, then shut them immediately. The brief glimpse of the world I'd gotten had been enough. It was white and blurred. Something cold and hard collided with my cheek, shooting fireworks across my vision. I said, wake up. I opened my eyes again. This time the world was a little less blurry. I blinked until the person in front of me came into focus. There, holding what looked like some kind of metal sculpture, was Stephanie Carson. There you are, she said matter-of-factly. I was worried I'd hit you a little too hard. So, want to tell me why you've been walking outside my house for the past hour and a half? Mark Bailey, I said, my voice raspy and a little more than a whisper. There was a metallic taste in my mouth that seemed to extend into my lungs. Damn, maybe she had hit me a little too hard. Okay, great. My stalker has a friend. No, not a friend. He's going to kill you, tonight. That had come out a little more clearly. I would have been pleased with myself, but it was around that time that I noticed that I couldn't feel my hands. One look down and I could see why. My wrists were stuck to the arms of a chair, with a ridiculous amount of duct tape. Jeez, had she used one roll for each hand? Then Stephanie said something that made me forget about how my hands were already turning purple. I know. What? I asked, my voice sounding distant and slow, as if it was coming from a broken speaker on the other side of the room. He's been stalking me for a long time. He broke in last week and I got a restraining order out on him. He's close to figuring it out, I can tell. He's close to losing his crap too. It's gonna get violent. Whatever. I figure if anyone's going to do it, it might as well be him. I thought back to something Mark Bailey had said in the article, something I thought had just been the ramblings of a convicted murderer. Stephanie had gotten loose and had stood next to the kitchen knives instead of running away, like she was inviting Bailey to use them on her. I cleared my throat. Aren't you going to stop him? Don't you want to? Stephanie rolled her eyes like I was annoying her. Scratch the, like, I was annoying her. I'll come back anyway. Well, not me, me, but it doesn't really matter. It might make my parents look back at me, this version of me, twice. Now we just gotta figure out what to do with you. If my aunts get back, they'll get rid of you and stick you in an acid barrel. What? Aunts? They're what I call the fake parents that live here. Like, aunts, my parents. Like, aren't my parents? Get it? They're drones. Mindless versions, not the real deal. Do I have to explain everything to you? So if I cut you loose, will you leave quietly? But what about Mark? Oh, screw Mark Bailey. What does it even matter? You think I'm the first one of me to die? The first one to want to? I was speechless. That was the last thing I expected her to say. I can't feel my hands, I said finally. Stephanie nodded. She grabbed a pair of scissors from a desk next to her, and that was the first time I thought to look around. The walls were white, clinical. There were tables upon tables filled with lab equipment around us. It was like a high-end research lab, the kind of place that might be responsible for creating a deadly virus 
or resurrecting dinosaurs, or making multiple versions of the same teenage girl. Stephanie cut the tape around my wrists. I winced. The blood shooting back through my bruised wrists felt like acid. You can't let Bailey kill you, I said, rising slowly. Who are you anyway? A teacher at Rosalind? Didn't you go to Rosalind? I asked. No, it was Monica and Natalie. Stupid of them to send two of us to the same school, right? No wonder Bailey lost his marbles. So you're not the same person? Wow, you're all questions, aren't you? You haven't even answered mine. I told her my name, then went about explaining everything I could about the midnight paper and my posts online. I let her read through them on my phone. It was then that I saw it, that strange intelligence that Bailey had mentioned. Her face came alive, and I could almost see millions of hyper-complex gears turning in her mind. Wormhole might explain it, she said finally, then shook her head. Scratch that. Simulation. Wormhole was stupid. Only... Hmm. You said you got a paper tonight, right? And that it was still in the dumpster? Yeah, I said catching up. Let me take a look at it. I don't think that's a good idea. Neither was touching the damn thing, breathing its fumes or trying to burn it, Stephanie said. Yeah, I guess you have a point. We moved from one room in the basement to another, and I saw the shelves filled with the occult books that Mark Bailey had mentioned. Those are mine, Stephanie said. Can't rule anything out, right? I shrugged, not sure what she was talking about. Then I checked my phone, and my heart stopped. 4 a.m. Mark Bailey was due any second. Stephanie didn't seem to notice. She was moving so fast, she was practically a blur. By the time I had gotten through the foot of the stairs, she was already in the kitchen. That was when I heard it. A man's voice. Mark Bailey's voice. What are you? He asked. You're Monica. Then as quickly as it happened, Bailey's voice was cut short. I rushed up the stairs and slid into the kitchen. There on the tile floor, Mark Bailey lay in a pool of his own blood. His neck was cut open. Stephanie tossed a bloody knife into the sink. Don't worry, she said. My arms will take care of it. Where'd you park your car? It was almost dawn by the time we were standing in front of the dumpster. I pulled the plastic bags out and cut them open slowly with a pair of scissors from the lab. Stephanie's face lit up the second she saw the black bundle roll out. Before I could stop her, she ripped the twine off and unrolled the paper. Then she frowned. She turned the paper toward me. Can you read it? She asked. I nodded. I can't see anything. Just black paper and no words written in white ink. I bet whoever appears in the articles can't read them, because I'm not real. The paper must have created me like you thought. She was actually smiling as she said it. Doesn't that bother you? No, are you kidding me? I'm thrilled. I'd much rather be created by a mysterious newspaper than my damn parents. Read it to me, she ordered. Some of the words were already being erased, but I read the article to her anyway. This is what it said. The perfect being? Experts call aerial phenomenon easy to explain. It's only been two days, but the residents of a small town in upstate New York have already grown accustomed to it. There's a strange shape in the sky that isn't going away, and it looks like a person. The event began sometime after dawn on blank morning. It's now blank, and the clouds aren't going anywhere. It's not just a shape, says blank, a lifelong resident of 
blank. There's light in there, like no matter how dark it gets, there's something in there that's shining, like a little sun. The apparition is certainly uncanny. It's a little shape that looks like a person in the sky. It has all the parts you'd expect. A head, two arms, complete with their hands, and two legs plus their feet. The arms and legs are pointed at an angle so that they make an X shape. It looks like the Da Vinci Man, one woman said. She's not the only one. Many people have drawn the comparison between the man-shaped object and Da Vinci's iconic Vitruvian Man. If this was only an oddly shaped object, it wouldn't have made as big of an impact on the residents. Indeed, there is a strange glow to it, as it reflects the sunlight in such a way that the entire human shape is lit up at once. When the sun goes down, the glow remains, shining like a big star that often hides behind thick clouds. This is an age where everyone has a smartphone in their pocket, a gadget that doubles as an expensive camera. So why haven't you heard of this before? The answer is simple. It's too far away. It's about the size of a fingernail, a resident explained. Just hold your little finger up to the sky and imagine something floating up there that's as big as the nail. That's not very big at all. A photography expert explained that most phone cameras aren't particularly good at taking photos of something that small at a distance, especially against a bright sky. As a result, most of the images that have made their way to social media show a blurry speck against a blazing white sky. At night, the results are even worse, at best capturing a circle of light, at worst simply showing a dark sky. Meteorologists, astronomers, and aficionados of aerial phenomena have indeed regarded the apparition as a trick of the light. I think it's a kite, said a local man who owns a high-end telescope. Some kind of man-shaped kite that someone let go of, maybe as a prank. A meteorologist stated that it's easy to explain. It could be any number of things ranging from drones to homemade balloons. It's nothing natural though, certainly not a meteor and definitely not a sign of the end times. So how exactly did this apparition become known as the perfect being? A local news station was interviewing a group of onlookers when they were approached by a strange man. There was something off about him for sure, stated blank a veteran field reporter who isn't shaken up by weirdos. He just walked up to the camera when we were interviewing another eyewitness and saying that he made it and that it's the perfect being. A weirdo. A kook. We get too many to count, but it caught on, mostly because people were making fun of the guy. The strange aerial phenomenon known as the perfect being still hasn't disappeared from the sky. Far from it, it actually has gotten a little bigger. It's like it's getting closer, said another resident, dropping down slowly like, like it's falling. Some residents have taken it upon themselves to study this steady rate of decline in a scientific manner. If it keeps dropping at its current rate, it'll be down in about a week, says a young girl who looks about as serious as someone working for NASA. It won't drop here. It'll drop the next town over. We'll just have to wait and see if this amateur astrologer is right on the money. When I was done reading, Stephanie was smiling again. What does it mean? I asked, already getting used to relying on her superior intelligence. Nothing much, just that we've got a doctor's appointment, she said. <laughs>